This is the Hockey Podcast Network, your home for hockey talk on every team in the NHL. Team you hate playing again? Yeah, uh, yeah I guess fucking auto, I guess. <laughs> We're a team. Hey everyone, welcome back to a brand new episode of the Sense Hour podcast. We are joined again with from with Derek Lee from Sunshine. Thank you for joining today, Derek. How you doing? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good today. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, and I mean, a uh, little special treat with uh, Ian Mendez is going to be joining us uh, around 10.30 today. So that'll be uh, a nice little treat for, for the listeners and for us. Absolutely. One of the uh, very best at uh, at doing this. So I'm looking forward to talking to Ian later. Yeah, I, uh, I talked to him right before around quarantine started. And uh, my my computer lagged. It just kind of shut down, right? Like it, it crashed right as I was exporting the file and I lost it. And it was the most frustrating day of my life. So, you know, being able to talk to him again is going to be going to be exciting. But we got some big news for the Sens. Uh, Connor Brown. And Chris Tierney have signed with a matter of weeks because last time we talked, which I believe was last Wednesday, Connor Brown was still up in the air and then Tierney, obviously. So, you know, great contracts, I find, you know, a three year deal for Brown, uh, just over, I think, what, 3.8 uh, his AAV? Something like that? At, yeah, I think he's at 3.6. So pretty close. Yeah. And then Tierney is 2. Point some and then 4.2. Yeah. So uh, he's at 3.5 AAV. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic deal for Ottawa. And I think it's a good job by Dorian to kind of get these stuff done before arbitration. Yeah, I like the uh, I like the short term deals as well for these guys. Um, I think we kind of know that they're not necessarily going to be um, core members of the team. I think maybe Connor Brown has a chance um, when his deal expires. Uh, but I think with the center depth, for sure, uh, Chris Kearney is unlikely going to be a long-term Ottawa senator. So, um, so I like the three-year term, the two-year term. I think that's the the right term for these players. Yeah, I mean, and kind of lost through all of it. Schlappick signed a one-year, two-way contract the other day as well. And also took, like, the most epic contract signing picture ever. <laughs> like, I don't nah. know if you've ever seen a picture. What with the flow? Um, he had like a, I think it was an elk or something in the background. Like he was in his beautiful house, wherever. Oh yeah. He and he had like this elk in the background, and he, yeah, he had some flow going on. He had the mustache, like just a just a really cool picture. Yeah, and I mean, uh, I think that means Yaros is officially the last RFA sign needing to be signed. And obviously, I feel like for the Senators, no news is good news. You know, there wasn't really talk about Connor Brown or Tierney kind of contracts. So who knows? It could pop up today that Yaros has signed probably a one-year, two-way contract again. Kind of something similar to Schlappick. Yeah, I think with the right side being pretty full now, especially with the acquisition of Zub um, and, you know, Josh Brown, and they've got Kid Branson there, I think it makes sense that Yaros is going to probably sign to a two-way deal. Um, I was kind of on the fence thinking that, you know, maybe they would give him a one-way deal 
this year, but I, I don't think he's quite established himself uh, just yet. Yeah, I don't think so either. I think if you talk to a lot of uh, a lot of people in the organization, we'll, we'll ask Mendez this if it's true, but I've seen a lot of people talk like he kind of stalled. Uh, last year they wanted a little bit more from him. He showed it in Belleville, but he, he suffered an injury and he kind of wasn't the same after that injury and they wanted more and they just didn't get it. So I think they're a little bit worried about has this player stalled and is he going to project to be, you know, uh, an NHL right side defenseman and, you know, a one-year deal, someone gets hurt, that's your chance to kind of slot in, battle out a guy like Zub uh, in training camp. So I I like Aros. I think he's one of our better prospects and he has been the last couple of years, but as an organization, you can't rely solely on, you know, this high guy having a bounce back here. Yeah, I like, uh, as you said, I like Yaros too. I like his physicality. He's uh, he's a player that is definitely not afraid to throw a big hit. Um, and he has glimpses. Like, I remember a couple of brief glimpses last year offensively where he's shown some real creativity. I think it was a nice slap pass. I want to say Bobby Ryan tipped it in, but... I could be wrong there, but he, he just had one play in particular that I remember that it looked like, whoa, who is this guy? Like he's sending a, a beautiful, uh, beautifully timed slap pass, like fake slap shot, slap pass, finding the guy in the high slot for the tip in. And it was a beautiful play. And uh, yeah, that was kind of like, wow, Christian Yaros. All right. You can do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I remember he was the number one D-man in Belleville for a while, when, you know, Lejoie got hurt and Branstrom was up here because we had our rash of injuries. And he was just kind of manning the four. And he kind of got – I went down to uh, down to watch a good Belleville game last year. I think it was against Milwaukee. We ended up losing the game. But when it was him and Lejoie with Logan Brown, Batherson, and Formentin on the ice, they just all – five all five of them on the ice, they just kind of controlled the play. And – I liked what I saw from Yaros down there. He came up here. He had a short stint. Liked what I saw. I think he can take a big step. I wouldn't be surprised if he's back in Belleville. Uh, I'm expecting him to be, uh, to if he does sign, uh, to announce that he's being loaned out to some team in Europe for the time being. Yeah, and that's what a lot of the players, especially the players who are on the, that cusp of, you know, potentially cracking the NHL lineup, but not necessarily... Uh, going to get that opportunity, it gives them a chance to kind of have that head start ahead of training camp. Um, And we're seeing, you know, so many of our prospects kind of take off overseas right now and just put up some phenomenal numbers. Yeah, Rudolph Balsers comes to mind. He's, uh, I think uh, since he's come over, him and uh, Abramov have just kind of started to light the lamp a little bit when it comes to playing overseas. Yeah, Abramov went, um, he's playing, Abramov's playing a a much tougher league as well. Um, He's playing in the top league out there, and he is putting up some phenomenal numbers. And it it really makes you wonder if this is an NHL player this year. Like, just the fact that he's so dominant, and he's also playing on the weakest team out there. Like, that team was on a major losing streak until they got him. And then as soon as they got him, he was their number one player, and he was just providing so much offense for them. Oh, 100%. And I think he's what he scored. He had two goals in his debut and has kind of been on a point streak since. 
Yeah, he's yeah, six points in four games, according to Elite Prospects. Five yeah. goals and one assist. Five goals and an assist in, what, six games? Four games. In four games. Yeah, that's yeah. wild. Wow. And according to Elite Prospects, uh, Balser's... I don't know how true this is. I feel like they might be a little bit behind on it. Uh, but he has four... Balser says four points in three games um, out in Norway. One goal, three assists. Yeah, now that's kind of expected, I think, for Rudy Balsers, just because he's playing in a lesser quality league um, against some, you know, some lesser competition, whereas a guy like Abramov is is playing in the top league. Um, And also, uh, you know, we should point out um, Eric Brandstrom. Um, I think he just had a nice goal, uh, I think it was yesterday, he put up another point. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure he had what a point and uh, an assist, a goal and an assist the other night, or something like that. I think we, I, the fact that the Balsers is 23, Abramoff is 22, and Branstrom's 23. I think we forget how young these people, like the, these players, are, and that like we need a they need a little bit of time to develop. But he has five points in five games, according to uh, elite prospects with. Uh, uh, SCL Tigers in Switzerland. Yeah. And that point total should increase because apparently uh, Marco Rossi's heading out there to, to join on a loan because he signed with uh, uh, Minnesota. And that just adds to the jersey list that I need because I need a Rossi because I have the, the 67s one behind me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I need a new Ryan one. The fact that he's going back to his 54 that he wore in his rookie year with Anaheim is kind of nice. But I need a new Detroit jersey. I'm going to get a Ryan. And I also have to get a Batherson before the season starts. Speaking of jerseys and numbers, how weird is it going to look if Josh Norris decides that this year he's going to rep the number nine? Honestly, I wouldn't be upset. I, but I don't, like, with Good Branson going to 44, I don't, like, no numbers are off limits. Um, but it's going to be interesting because... You know, Norris has worn a bunch of numbers throughout his playing career. He's worn 37, he's worn 14, he's worn 9, uh, you know. And I, I think he's one of those guys where I don't think numbers matter. Yeah, uh, he'll just be happy to be there. <laughs> yeah, I think he's just, it's a number. I, I think I think Belleville has a thing where, like, uh, no one's above, like, the goalie. Like, the goalie has the highest number. Because, um, like, over the last couple of years, like, I haven't seen players where, like, 59 in Belleville. I don't think if you go back last year, I don't remember anyone over like 40. Everyone was from like 40 and below and the goalies was the 40. So I think AHL numbers matter, but like Formington, for example, I think he wore 59 with London and he's only wearing 10 with Belleville because he has no choice because Batherson wore seven his first year in Belleville and then switched to 19. So it's going to be interesting. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing for me, too, is that, you know, all their numbers are different in the American Hockey League than the, the NHL, um, which is, you know, sometimes they're just not available in the NHL. But uh, but it's interesting that for the most part, I think their numbers are different. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, because even when, for prime example, when Shabbat was in Belleville, and this is, you know, one of the, the discussions that like, oh, you know, numbers, he wore five in St. John's, he wore five for Team Canada, he wore five in Belleville. You know, when CC left, I was like, "Oh, maybe maybe Shabbat kind of switches to to five 
Um, I mean, clearly 72 has kind of grown on him. But it's interesting that, like, I don't remember anyone recently who, when they've gone to Belleville, has stayed the same numbers. Maybe Colin White. Maybe. And when he was sent down after his injury. But even then, I don't think when he, he came into the league or came into the organization, he didn't wear 36 for Belleville. He wore like, I think he wore 16 or something like that. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting uh, storyline. I don't know, you know, what the backstory is on that, but uh, I want to say, does Logan Brown wear 21 in Belleville and 21 in Ottawa? I thought he wore, I think he wears 22 in Belleville. Oh, okay. Yeah. He okay. either wears 20, because I'm pretty yeah. sure Nick Paul wore 21 his uh, right. in, in Belleville and then Logan Brown wore 22. But I think oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly look that up because I can't remember. Yeah, that's one for me that I was thinking. Man, I swear I've seen because uh, I've watched a few Belleville games as well, and I thought I seen Logan Brown wearing 21. But I think I, he switched this year. I think he went to 21 because there's pictures with him in 22 hmm. uh, in Belleville, but I can't remember if he switched to 21. Maybe this year when Paul when. Uh, Nick Paul was promoted. Yeah. Yeah, I know because, uh, yeah, because Paul wore 21. Uh, yeah, it's kind of hard to tell. Uh, I'm going to go to their roster real quick. Um, but yeah, it, I think, uh, Branstrom is the yeah. only one that I can think of because he wears 26. I thought he was 17, Branstrom, in Belleville. No? Uh, I think he was when he originally got there. Oh, but I think. When he like heading into the like last season, he switched to twenty six. Because uh, like Schlappick is like fourteen, but he's uh, yeah. I know Logan Brown was twenty two uh, last year. Um, All right. Yeah, Parker Kelly was forty seven. So okay, they have changed it a little bit, where they've right. been able to go above forty, which is nice. Uh, yeah, I know Branson was twenty six, uh, and then. Yaros was 15 instead of his ridiculously high number in Ottawa. 83 or whatever it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's the same with, with Volano. When he's in Belleville, he was 24. And when he was up here, he was 86. Yeah. I would say with Volano, he definitely preferred 24, especially now that he's switched to it. Yeah. It's funny because uh, people were so surprised that he switched to 24, but there was a piece out by Belleville I think in like January where they're talking about Jersey numbers and he said that he was going to switch to 24 next season when he was a full-time member because he's on a one-way contract. So he's like, I'm, I'm going to switch to 24 next year. Yeah. And, then, and it's funny, like so, sometimes they, they just don't even have the choice, right? Like it's, if the team like provides you with this number and as a rookie or someone just entering the league, you're not going to be like, no, I want this number. <laughs> so unless yeah, you're, you know, Stutzel. Yeah. Oh yeah. If you're a, yeah. If you're Stutzla, you could change three times before you get in the league. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Uh, I feel bad for anyone who bought an 88 jersey. Well, it was nice of the team. Like The, the team posted um, that they would do what they can if you email the team. If it's an official jersey and you email the team, they will do what they can to switch the number over and the name. Because a lot of people went with the dotted uh, U. Like the, yeah, the, the, uh, the amulet or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I like that. Like personally, I like that look, but 
uh, Stutzla is going to go with the uh, like the American spelling of it. Honestly, I love the 18. The 18 looks a lot sharper than the 88 personally on the jerseys. Uh, maybe it's because it just kind of gives me like Hosa reminders. It's just like I see the 18 and I'm just like Hosa. Yeah, I, I love the number. I I liked 88 just because I thought, you know, that's a pretty damn confident move. A kid coming in who is being compared to Patrick Kane coming in and saying like, yeah, I'll I'll take these comparisons seriously. I'll throw on the number 88. But of course, there was the whole, you know, controversy that he probably wasn't aware of. And, and when he was made aware, he switched over to yeah, the, uh, the Hitler thing. Right. Yeah. Person that kind of, it bugs me because like the only reason why it's an issue is because he's, you know, German. Yeah. And I understand, but like, you know, Eric Lindros, no one complains. Uh, you know, Katja Kane, no one complains. I feel like it's one of those things where like, I don't think we have to worry about that with this kid. <laughs> it's a it's a hockey jersey number. Like, I mean, we're overthinking it big time and overanalyzing it. But you know what? Good on Tim Stutzla for, um, you know, probably finding out and then making the switch to yeah. number eighteen. I mean, I on, I mean, I don't think I've ever seen him wear eighty eight. I'm pretty sure he's wearing eighteen or eight, eight. Just eight, yeah. Just eight with Germany, so. When it was like, hmm, he'd go to 88. Kind of kind of threw me through a loop. I figured he would just go to 18 because it was available. Not a huge jump from 8 to 88 like that. And I mean, you're not going to get compared to anyone besides Hosa with 18. And that's yeah. not a bad comparison either. No. <laughs> but honestly, like, we're before, since we're talking about numbers and jerseys and whatnot, these reverse retros. I'm assuming you've seen the leaks of the the Pittsburgh and the Philly, the Vegas one, and the the Wild Wing uh, orange ducks. It, every team's going to have it. Um, they haven't said if it's every team's going to have it this year or every team's going to just have it released over the next couple of years. What are what jersey? Because I'm a believer that the O logo is dead. Uh, from everything I've heard, everything I've seen, the ownership doesn't like the O logo. It doesn't resemble their organization. It's a previous organization. Um, and, you know, they haven't stopped using the 3D. Like, the 3D still kind of in circulation when it comes to merch and whatnot. Where do you think, if, if you were to do a, ro- a reverse retro, which one would you like to see? Oh, man. if I Like, if I was to do it, like, personally, I love the O logo. But, like you said, uh, the organization probably doesn't value that. So, if if we're discounting the O logo, I mean, the only one for me that I really like is the 2D logo that they're already using. Um, so could they make could they make the 3D logo look all right on, on this, you know, whatever, this gimmicky reverse retro thing that the NHL is doing? I, I guess so. Like, um, you know, I'd be curious to see what it looks like on a different stripe pattern and um, I, I would imagine it would be a red jersey, just provided that they have a black and a white. Um, but they already have a red jersey, and it's not really retro if you're going with the 3D logo. Like they just used it last year, <laughs> so yeah. um, it's it's an interesting uh, topic. Uh, personally, I, I would want to see a red version of the O logo that isn't the red version that they just had. Yeah, I hate the red version that they have. I hate the silver O. It looks so bad. Yeah, they kind of wrecked it. Like, 
they, they had so much potential with that jersey. And I think it, what Belleville did, like Belleville's jersey looked fresh and great uh, with the red and the B and in a very similar style to um, the Ottawa red uh, O uh, jersey, but Ottawa kind of ruined it. <laughs> I think it's because, the, I think this is where the NHL kind of messed up because they wanted something, because it was the 100th anniversary, right? So they wanted something to to commemorate that and they were using a lot of like that silver colorway to kind of to promote it right they were using like the silver for the hundredth year and then ottawa was probably like okay well what kind of way can we represent a hundred years of ottawa hockey and i think they were like oh we'll use the old logo and then we'll make it silver to kind of represent the silver seven oh yeah and it's just like it makes sense but it just the execution of the jersey was awful yeah, it sounds good on paper, right? Like you, you're doing it for the right reasons, but unfortunately, the jersey looks like crap. So <laughs> you yeah, can't I mean, admit. Personally, I would just like them to reverse the black one with like do a red with the black stripes. Yeah, and black lettering with a white outline on it. I think that would be that would be great because we've never seen a red jersey with the 2D logo on it. I think we were we were robbed of that when they went to the 3D logo in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I would just love to see a red. 2d logo jersey that would be phenomenal and again if they're into making money which (laughs) who isn't um i think that would be a hot seller if they did it right again you know there's probably several different ways that they could kind of rep something like that but um but if they just kept to the standard kind of you know with the black format just switching it over to the red um i think it would look phenomenal 100 percent. or they bring back the senegoth as a red version because I know that a lot of people have been bringing that one up for a Sens, a Sens retro reverse look. And I just, I don't know how I feel about it. I feel like it would look weird in a red jersey. Yeah, I think that logo too is kind of expired. Like, I, I think, you know, at the time it was pretty cool. I remember liking it at the time as a kid. Um, but now when I look at it, it's just, it just doesn't really look like a professional NHL logo. Um but, you know, it's something different if they wanted to do something different. This whole thing is something different. It's kind of gimmicky, in my opinion. But um, but it's it's cool. And, and I mean, they've got to make revenue. They've got to make money um, in some sort of unique way. And I guess this is one of them. Yeah, and I mean, I much prefer the coming out with like a retro look. Because I think some of them, like Pittsburgh's looks pretty cool. But... I don't know. I feel like they should just let people go back to this, like just a retro look. I don't think this reverse retro thing is smart. Like just, just let them go back to like an actual retro jersey. Yeah, instead of reversing the color format yeah. of what they're doing. And Something the third one is the just the lettering, right? Yeah, the word mark. That I don't. Yeah. Wow. But I mean, to be fair though, I think that was one of those jerseys that people wanted in the nineties and they just never got it. And they're like, Hey, we'll, we'll come out with this. And it's better in my opinion than any of the other alternates that Pittsburgh has really come out with uh, over the last couple of years. Yeah. I kind of just like Pittsburgh's home and away jerseys. Like they went back to their kind of classic look and I think that looks great. But yeah, the, the blue, is it the all blue one? Yeah. That they wore in like, Oh eight, the, the Oh eight outdoor game. Yeah, to me, that's a huge miss. Like, it just doesn't look very good. And then you got the goalie who's got his setup on geared to the black and, and orange, and you've got blue jerseys on, so it just looks wacky. <laughs> yeah, I never – I mean, the jerseys look nice as, like, a one-time use, and I'm glad they've kind of just kept it as a one-time use. 
but I want them to bring back the RoboCut. If that's if there's one jersey that like I wish the league would bring back or a team would be bring back would be that RoboCut like Robo Penguin jersey with like oh, the gradient. Right now, yeah, yeah, that like, would be, yeah. Like that I, is comeback. You're right. Like I think now is the time to make that comeback for that jersey. That and the Lady Lady Liberty are the two jerseys that I want to see make a comeback into the NHL. Absolutely, yeah. That uh, that's a hot ticket. Uh, the Rangers jersey that 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 thing is phenomenal. That would be one of the best. I wish I wish they would just like. It's funny how like I remember even though I was like a kid, I still remember how much people hated a lot of the '90s jerseys. They were like, "Oh man, they're tired. They're boring." And now you know, 15 years later. Uh, Everyone's like, let's go back to it. Everything old is new again. <laughs> yeah, because I remember when Reebok took over in 07 and people were so ecstatic for this fresh new look and that, you know, the the teams are going to get a revamp. They're going to get a remodel. And now you're looking back and you're like, man, nothing has changed since then. And it's it's nice to go back and have like a fresh set of, of looks for for people. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, if, if this generation in – you know, if we flash forward to 10 or 15 years from now, um, the 3D logo that everyone like hated for multiple years, I wonder if we come to a time where we're like, oh, the Sens need to bring the 3D logo back because that was memories of, you know, Eric Carlson and Mark Stone and, you know, whoever the big senators were at, uh, at the time wearing that jersey. Yeah, and I mean, I, I still think it's funny because I remember everyone hating the 2D logo when they switched officially switched to the uh both jerseys as the the 3d i remember everyone being like yeah the 2d logo is ugly like it's it's old it's dated it needs a revamp and like you know we like the 3d logo and over the years people are like man this 3d logo is boring and it's plain and we don't do anything with it and then they came out with the o logo and it made it even worse because everyone's like oh my god the o logo is so much better than the 3d logo and then they started teasing the with Alfredson's retirement. They started teasing the, uh, the yeah, 2D logo again. And then people were like, "Oh my god, just bring it back!" Yeah, exactly. And and the same thing could happen. Like it could all just come full circle, and you know we're right back where we are, hoping that the 3D logo comes back. Um, or maybe they make something new. Who knows? Just a full on like rebrand. I can actually, yeah. yeah, name, logo, colors, everything. Yeah, hopefully they're still in Ottawa. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think they will be. I know there was a report the other day that came out saying that the league may, thinks that uh, there could be a couple of teams that if they can't survive the next two years, they might be relocated and like Quebec's on Quebec, Houston, and KC. Are kind of the the cities that have popped up as potential relocation uh, areas. Mm-hmm. I really don't think Ottawa is one of those teams. No, and I I hope not. I like I hope we're you know not just being kind of in our bubble and kind of ignoring that. But um, but hopefully things will uh, stabilize over the next couple of years. And I know um, Melnick's fragrance product is doing well now. Uh, from what I've heard, it's like number one in Europe or something. So, um, so that's you know something new that he has that will hopefully generate some money for him. And um, 
and that's all we can really hope for right now. I don't think anyone's going to buy the team. So, um, you know, as much as people talk about wanting a, a new owner here, I don't know how realistic that is at, at this time. So I mean, we have to hope Melnick does better. Melnick doesn't. I mean, I think we have to give Melnick credit. He obviously has put in the money, like put his money where his mouth is at this point. But I also like he doesn't need to sell. You know, if the league's not forcing him to sell, there's no like no serious buyers. You know, according to Forbes, it's valued at you know four hundred forty-five million dollars. You're gonna have to put in a substantial offer, and you know he he's in no place to sell. He doesn't feel like he needs to sell, so why is he gonna sell? Yeah, and he's probably looking forward to that uh, Seattle expansion money too. So, hundred percent. So you know why sell now? Um, and- you- It'll be after he gets that money. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, will he sell the team and the arena, or will he just sell the team? Because that's something that, you know, is also, because he owns the arena. It's not like it's a city-owned arena and he's just renting it out. He owns the arena. So if he's going to, he can just sell the team and be like, I'll sell you the team for this amount, but I'm going to keep the, like, the land and the arena, so you're going to have to find yourself a new place to play. Or I'll sell you the team, and then you can rent out the arena from me. Right, so he's still making money from that. Yeah, like yeah. he's in. He has all the leverage when it comes to talks because he owns the arena, and that's the biggest. Like, if he doesn't own the arena, he probably saves a little bit more money. To be probably doesn't save as much money, and he it's he's not in as much leverage to sell as he would if he didn't. Right. And uh, yeah, the the interesting piece to the arena too. I don't know if you read up on it, but uh, Melnick um, uh, made an announcement I think the other day uh, about wanting to build a new arena, but not downtown in Canada, <laughs> right beside the other arena. What do you make of that? See, I don't think Canada is a bad place. I honestly, I, I know I, I joke about it a lot, and it makes sense because you know if you're out in Orleans. And you have a, a young family, you know, if you if you have a, a two-year-old and a four-year-old, you're not coming out to talk, coming out on a on a Thursday night game to uh, to watch the Senators. No matter how much you want to, it's not happening. So I don't think the arena, the location kind of sucks, but it's also the demographic of Ottawa where a lot of young families, no one's going to go all the way out to Canada on a Thursday night when their kids have to go to school the next morning. Yeah, and I think, that you know that that's the funny part about that statement. It's just like the arena. I don't think is the problem at all. Like you can make renovations and you know fix up the arena and, and make it look really good. It's where it where it's located. That's the problem. Um, so it's just interesting that you know his idea of a fix was building a new arena right beside the other arena. <laughs> yeah. Anyways, uh, we have Ian Mendez waiting in the waiting room, so we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll have him on with us, and he'll, we'll ask him what he thinks about the, uh, the arena situation going on in Canada. Hello, bonjour, hello, hi, heya, and previet, hockey fans. Welcome to the Europuck Podcast the show where two Brits talk all things European hockey as part of the Hockey Podcast Network. If you want to keep updated on all of the latest news, scores or standings from across the European hockey world, you want to get some insight from some very interesting guests discussing their stories with hockey and 
how the sport grows around in Europe in different interesting places, or if you want to keep updated with all of the leagues across Europe that are either playing, have been suspended, cancelled, delayed indefinitely, then do check out our latest episodes of the Europuck podcast every Friday as part of the Hockey Podcast Network. We have a YouTube channel, the Europuck Podcast, and you can listen to us wherever else you get your podcasts. So check us out every Fridays, and we'll see you there, folks. And we're back. Uh, that was a nice little promo for the Europuck Podcast, part of the Hockey Podcast Network. Great for uh, European prospects. Uh, honestly, they uh, they actually just had an interview with one of the guy, one of the heads of Israel Hockey. So head on over and check that out if you want to know more about international hockey. But we are proud to introduce Ian Mendez, TSN 12, uh, 1200 voice uh, on of the drive, 2-6 to six on TSN 1200 in Ottawa. Thank you for joining us, Ian. How are you doing today? Guys, I'm uh, I'm doing great. How about how about you? I'm good. It's a gloomy morning in Ottawa, but you know that's fall weather, right? It's uh, not. You know, you get that. And today was kind of the first day that there was like legitimate snow on oh, the ground. Uh, man, it was. Uh, it's depressing. It's gone now, but it's still it's that depressing. I'm not a fan of pre-Halloween snow. That yeah, I agree on that. It always kind of snows or rains on Halloween and it's like the worst thing you know you're taking your kids out trick-or-treating and you're either going to get snowed on or rained on and you've got to like pull the car up instead of actually walking and it's just it kind of ruins Halloween so I really hope you know it can snow all it wants right now but just hope that Halloween day we get some nicer weather <laughs> yeah I, I've always said this I, it's great that Halloween's on a Saturday this year I think that's awesome like I wish it was always on a Saturday wouldn't it be perfect for us in Canada if Halloween was exactly one month earlier, like say September 30th? Like the costume options, you wouldn't have to, you know, Spider doesn't have to wear a parka, all that stuff. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah I know that's 100 percent true. Uh, I agree on that 100. percent We had like even if it was like early October, like the first weekend in October, it would work perfectly. Yeah, exactly. Anything but this. Anything but. Uh, uh, end of October. Right, listen, I know you guys didn't uh, call, get me on here to do a referendum on Halloween. <laughs> hey, man, honestly, like, it's fine. I I, uh, I understand. I mean, isn't I know it's a little bit off topic, but isn't like Halloween canceled in Ontario? I mean, I don't have any, anyone who goes trick or treating, so I'm not really following up on that. But I know it's kind of a big news for for a lot of parents who have kids, where like they're getting mad that you know how like trick or treating has been canceled, but like dance studios have been opened up. Yeah, that's that. That's exactly it. It's like. Uh, for months, they've been telling us, uh, stay outside, wear a mask, practice social distancing. And I, I kind of feel like uh, you can do all of those things on Halloween, can't you? Like, I think you can. I think we're smart enough and we're kind of well-versed enough in social distancing. We could do it, but they've told us, shut her down. There's some pockets of the province that are okay, but certainly in Ottawa, they've told us it's a no-go and it's. It's disappointing. I'm lucky. Like my kids are a bit older; they're both teenagers now, so they're not uh, they're not into that trick or treating. I just feel bad for for anybody who's got a kid kind of like ten and under that uh, that won't get that opportunity. Yeah, and uh, for me, I'm up in Muskoka, so uh, for me, uh, trick or treating is not canceled. I have a nine year old girl, so uh, she's really looking forward to uh, trick or treating. So, thankfully, I'm I guess far enough away from all the numbers uh, rising that. Uh, that we can still go door to door. You're lucky there, because I know a lot of people in Ottawa are upset they can't. But you know, Ian, you know, we were talking about it before, for, before you came on, before the break. What's your take on the 
arena situation going on and with the Melnick situation as a whole right now, you know, he's kind of kind of put his money where his mouth is with some of these signings. Do you think that he's kind of making amends with the fan base or is it still a long ways to go for him? Uh, I do think it's a long way to go. And I think it's, um, uh, you know, a journey of a thousand miles. I'd like to say a journey of a thousand miles sometimes begins with a single step. Right. And so uh, I think he's got a thousand miles to go. I think all of us who have covered this team and have watched this team know there's a disconnect between the fan base and the team. Anybody who says otherwise is fooling themselves, right? Like, so we can all agree that there's a disconnect. So how do you bridge the gap? You signed Evgeny Dadnoff. I think that's pretty good. You signed Matt Murray. And, you know, we can we can talk about whether that's too much money, but um, isn't it refreshing to talk about Ottawa overpaying a guy for once? So, look, um, that part of it, it's fine. But to sit here and tell you that after signing those two guys and, you know, maybe they'll do a couple of other things in the weeks ahead, to say that the bridge is gapped, I think is foolish. I don't think it is. And I think... Um, it's, it takes time. Uh, the relationship between a fan base and uh, a sports team, it's a precious entity. I think once you mess around with that, um, it takes a long time to uh, kind of get consumer confidence back. It's not going to come overnight. It's not going to come with, hey, let me just get a Timmy Stutzla 18 jersey and it's all good. It's going to take a couple more years of showing us that this is where you're, this is what you're doing. This is what you're committed to. Um, and so I, I like it. I just, I, I hope everybody understands that that's looking at this from outside, like how much people love the Ottawa Senators, how much uh, the two of you are a great example of how much people love the Ottawa Senators. I, I, I get a little bit disappointed when you see people say, move them to Quebec city. It's like, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what these guys and girls who have cared for this team have been through. Understand it's been hell to be an Ottawa fan the last five years or, you know, three years or whatever so this thing is a long long process that uh, I, I I'll, I'll tell you I like some of these moves that they've done I think that's going to help bring some fans back but let's not sit here and act like um, that the uh, the gulf has been uh, you know has been shortened and that it's all here we go uh, everyone's super excited yeah I agree with uh, with what you said there Ian I think there's, you know, there's still a long way to go uh, in terms of, you know, getting everyone back. And uh, he can do himself some favors if he just kind of stays out of the media and lets other people handle it. Um, I'm curious. Uh, we were just talking, Shane and I, about this arena situation. Um, Melnick came forward and said that his plan is to build a new arena if he can't get one downtown to build a new one right beside the CTC. Um, what's your take on that? Um this is the first I've ever heard of an arena issue in Ottawa, guys. I, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, you know what? Like, I, you know, I read that article, whatever that was, last week or earlier this month, and I was like, wait, what? Like, like, and I think it's the same the same feeling that we all had when LeBreton fell apart, um, whatever that was. Uh, I apologize. I'm losing track of the, the timeline of this. But, you know, whatever, 18 months ago, two years ago, when LeBreton fell apart, and then the senators were like, you know what, we don't need this. It's like, well, no, you spent years telling us that you needed to monetize a downtown arena for your long-term viability. And that's what we wanted, right? I think when you go through, and I've said this before, okay, and this is just my uh, overall picture of, of, of attendance issues in National Hockey League. If you look at the teams that have the biggest attendance issues in the NHL, okay, Florida Panthers, Arizona Coyotes, uh, you know, Carolina comes to mind. Ottawa has now unfortunately entered that conversation. Um, what do they all have in common? They don't have downtown arenas. Glendale is like 45 minutes outside of Phoenix. Um, Sunrise, Florida is nowhere near downtown Miami. 
Canada is nowhere near downtown Ottawa. It's a common thread that I think it's important. I don't know that we bring that up enough, that having a suburban arena um, isn't ideal. And I think it's, it's tough because if you live in the west end of the city and you live in Stittsville in Canada, I get it. You like going to the game. You like going down uh, Hunt Mar and getting back home in seven minutes. Well, that's great. Good for you. What about the rest of us that live in other parts of the city that want to, like, you know, when I... I used to travel a lot, right? Like I used to do uh, television and I got to, to go around all over North America. So I've been to every arena and it would always fascinate me. I'd, I'd go to like Washington or I'd go to Toronto and you'd be like, I'm like, wow, like these people are taking trains and they're going to the game, like in the subway. And it's like, wow, why couldn't we do this in Ottawa? And I think that's what really hurts me is that we saw the sketches for what LeBreton was supposed to be. I don't know that you can put that genie back in the box from the public uh, court of opinion we've seen the sketches we saw the 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 train station like we saw it all right like we saw everything and so to now go back and say hey well actually we're gonna go in Canada and we're, we're gonna have the rink where it is in an adjacent parking lot at Canadian Tire Center isn't that exactly what we just said we didn't need isn't that what we just spent five years debating so it's disappointing to me look my number one concern is how do we make this thing work in Ottawa long term my answer is I think we have a downtown arena and we do it um, in a way that uh, kind of brings everybody on board. But to do this again and tell me it's another 25 years of an arena out in the outskirts, I don't think that's good because you look around the league, I don't think that that's a recipe for success. I have a question real quick. What, what's the possibility of Oseg and Eugene Melnick working together? Because I, I find Lansdowne kind of out of the way. Like, it's downtown, but it, it's kind of down Bank Street. And, like, Bank Street, if we've down, been, down, been down Bank Street, it's not easy to drive down there. It's generally more of a walking kind of street. What are the chances that we can see just a giant multi-sports complex where we have uh, the football, rugby, uh, like that, that sports field for all them and a hockey arena for the 67 Senators and whatnot, all down, like, LeBreton Flats, just one giant sports complex. Is that something that you think could be managed or is the relationship between the two sides nowhere near working ability? I would have to say to answer your question, I would say that there's less than a 0% chance of that happening. In fact, look, I guess you should never say never. You know what? I, I, I should, you should never say never. So I'll put it at point zero 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 one percent chance of that happening. I think there's too much of a disconnect there between the two groups for them to all of a sudden get into a sandbox and play nicely together. Got to remember that uh, John Ruddy and, and his partnership group are actually still involved in a lawsuit over LeBreton Flats and Eugene Mucker. Didn't wasn't it uh, one group sued for seven hundred million and the other group came back and said, "I'm going to you for nine hundred million." So I'm not listen. I'm not a business expert, but I don't think active lawsuits are usually a good sign for a business partnership. So. I would say yeah, that's true. Idea of, and you know what? Where, where I agree with you is that um, Lansdowne is a little bit awkward, but this is Ottawa. This is Ottawa's issue. I wish we had a train system that ran through the Glebe underground, right? Like that had a station at Lansdowne, that had a station uh, in Old Ottawa South, that had a station at South Keys, and kind of we ran it up into Center Town. Like that would be ideal, right? And then you could put. Um, you know, an arena there. I get that, but I just, I don't see a scenario as it's currently constructed 
uh, where OSEG and the Ottawa Senators get together on any sort of significant partnership. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that you, you bring about like the a train going through the Glebe and, you know, my, my first thought is that, you know, people who live in the Glebe would never allow that to happen. They, they fought tooth and nail for, for that Lansdowne uh, construction being an issue. So I don't see as much as, as beneficial as it would be. I don't see that ever happening, unfortunately. Yeah, you're right. That, what, what was that group friends of Lansdowne that uh, tried to, uh, to, to kind of hold everything back? You're right. Like, I'm just saying like that in an ideal world, there's not very like, again someone would have to do the article on this or do the research on this but how many venues of that size so think of TD Place it's you know 25,000 seat stadium how many of that size are not accessible by uh, what we would consider to be like a system or mass transit like it's, it's not that much right like, there's not very many you can probably count on one hand um, but again this is an infrastructure issue that uh, I think plagues Ottawa that goes far beyond our sports teams. I think this is an infrastructure issue that, uh, quite frankly, uh, we need to be connecting the city uh, in, in different ways. Like we're, we're the only city on the planet, probably in North America, that has a bus system of this magnitude in the year 2020 with uh, the transit way connecting everything. Well, that was all well in time 30 years ago, but uh, it, it'd be nice if we got into the, the 21st century here. Yeah, and I mean that the train system has had its own issues. I don't, I don't agree with how they built the train system, and I think that's caused a lot of problems. But it's, it's been a long time in the making for for our train system. But I know, uh, what quick question about the the structure of the team and like what's going on in the locker room? Uh, obviously, you, you you guys covering the team last year. Did you kind of see that shift with like DJ Smith and kind of seeing like Kachuk and Shabbat grow into to leaders in that locker room? Is there anything you can tell us about what this team is trying to build and how the players are kind of responding to the the challenge? Look, this is going to be interesting, isn't it? Like, I, I think um, it was all great last year when they signed Thomas Shabbat. I think that was signed for organizational ability that was the thing that i think a lot of people looked at and said yeah this guy's in it for the long haul but now as we talked about this earlier you guys were asking about uh has ownership uh kind of get the consumer confidence back don't you kind of feel like the minute that, that they announced brady kachak has signed any sort of extension of uh of significance i don't mean a one-year deal i'm not gonna you get this guy locked up to five years or more that's the moment where you can say He's all in, Shabbat's all in, and now I feel like the fan base is all in. So to me, I, I think I'm waiting for that. So if you're asking about like kind of where Kachuk fits into it, I want to see that guy sign a contract extension to know that he uh, believes in the plan and believes in the group. I think you can start to talk about um, where they go as a group. But right now, I'd have to say based on the contract situation, this is kind of Thomas Shabbat. I don't know how else. You could look at this. He has signed up for an eight-year deal. I think he's getting a lot more uh, pressure on his shoulders when you get an eight times eight contract. Um, it comes with, uh, in the Canadian market, it comes with some uh, pressure and responsibility. I think he's up for the challenge. But I think he's the guy that right now, like if you're asking me today, if they had to name a captain for next season and Brady's contract isn't uh, done, I would say give it to Thomas Shabbat. He's, he's bilingual. He's easygoing. He's, uh, you know, he's he, he's the right guy to do it. So I think 
he's all in. I think I want to see how, how it all plays out with uh, with Chuck, and I, I'd like to think that they can get something done. There's no there's no rush, but I, I'd like to get, get something done. And then you can talk about, okay, this team, I think, I don't know what you guys think. In the world, they need to be a Stanley Cup contender in Tim Stutzla's entry-level deal. That's what I think. I think before Stutzla is out of his ELC and you need to pay that guy, you need at least one reason where you can take a run at being a Stanley Cup contender. So this is going to be really important, I think, where you got kind of two years, in my opinion, to get the ship righted and, and hopefully get in uh, into that direction. I mean, I definitely agree with that. I think with the moves that we've made, seeing that our right side is kind of locked up for the next three years, it kind of fits into that plan of, you know, being a, a playoff contender and like a borderline cup contender within that three-year mark. You know, I think Dadanoff will help a lot with that. You know, that right side, hopefully Batherson kind of starts to, to progress and lives up to the hype that we've kind of built up around him. Uh, Kachuk takes the next step, signs a long-term deal. And, you know, Stetzel kind of slots in wherever he slots in, but becomes an impact player. Uh, I think it's doable with, with the way we have things constructed as a team, but it's a matter of, you know, can, can what's on paper produce? And I think that's a big question everyone has. I think there's a lot of question marks still surrounding, you know, a young team without the veterans kind of surrounding them. I know they just got dad enough, but you know, that's one guy. Um, I think, yeah, if you're looking at a three-year window where they have to be competitive at the end of it, um, that's pretty quickly, in my opinion. And um, I agree with what you said, but I don't know that looking at it right now, I can say with confidence that they're going to be that competitive in three years. I, I hope they make a step this year and they're in, you know, even the mid-20s would be a step forward. Um, but then you, you've got to take a leap next year. Um, and that's where you have to see them kind of on that playoff bubble. And then the following year being a contender, I know a lot can happen from, from now to then, but to me, I mean, they still need to do quite a bit. So there's a lot of question marks in there. Yeah. I mean, that defense is, is riddled yeah, you know, with I, question I, marks. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I agree with you guys. Like, like there's no there's no looking at this team and saying yeah 100 percent in two years uh, they're to be a cup contender but that's what we were told right that's what the owner said is that uh, around 2022 2024 in that window um, they're going to be a contender right not just a but Stanley Cup contender written down on a piece of paper unparalleled success um, nobody <laughs> twisted your words nobody um, you know did anything that we we, we're, you know, I think it's our job to kind of um, hold them to that plan, hold them to some degree of accountability. And if you're going to say that you're going to be a Stanley Cup contender in 2022 or 23, um, like you said, Derek, um, they can't be languishing in 30th place again. You like you can't be 30th, 31st and 30th and then come back and say, OK, you know, we're still in the rebuild. Well, no, like this is this is the year that I agree with you. If they can even get up to like. 23rd, 24th overall in the standings. I'm not saying they should be a playoff bubble team this year, but I'm saying you better take a, a step forward and move up five or six spots, get out of that low rent district with Detroit and whoever else is going to be there uh, this season. Get out of there, move into that next group, you know, be like those Chicago's and, um, you know, where those teams have been, the Rangers the last few years, where they've been, 
get into that district, and then the following year, I think you should push for a punt. And then the year after that, which again would, I guess, theoretically be Timmy Sousa's last year of his ELC, that's when you should be a, a Stanley Cup contender. But um, like, like you were saying, Shane, there's a lot of questions. Ken, uh, is Enstrom a top four guy? Uh, where, what's Lassie Thompson? Uh, what's Sanderson? Um, you know, all of these things, these are all, there's, there's not, not a, look, look, ask any Buffalo Sabres fan about a plan. Um, ask any Edmonton Oilers fan about a plan. These guys have uh, generational teams on their team, and there's, there's no uh, guarantee of success, right? So this thing, um, this thing is a big roll of the dice, and, uh, and I guess we're going to wait and see what happens in the next couple of years. And uh, that's for sure. It's it's going to be interesting. I think next year is going to be a very big tell. Uh, Thompson uh, in his second year, hopefully in North America. Bernard Docker uh, leaving UND, coming coming to to join Ottawa or Belleville. So I think the the twenty one twenty two season is going to be the biggest tell of what the direction of this rebuild has taken us. Um, I know Derek wanted to talk about uh, a little bit. We were talking uh, through on Twitter. Uh, about the situation of what happened um, the other day with the Arizona prospect. Uh, and we wanted to bring it up and, and see your your perspective on the whole situation and kind of just discuss about, you know, because, it, you know, he's at UND and, you know, Ottawa has a very big history with UND players. We have four of them currently on the team. And I think there it needs to be talked about even as a, as a sense as you know, part of the sense because of the UND connection. Um, you know, what what's your your take on the whole situation? Yeah, listen, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak out on that too because it's uh, it's something that we need to correct in the hockey culture. And um, I think what I'm in the hockey world, I'm tired of minorities or you know people of color or women being. Tr- Treated as learning examples for young men. Okay, we exist and women don't exist, so that when you're a, a teenage boy or a young man, that you can go and have some mistake and, and act in a toxic manner, and then it's a learning experience. Like we don't exist for for you to learn um, how the world works. And that, I think that's what the tip thing is. You look at the story and you ask yourself, did you tr- truly do due diligence? If you're the Arizona Coyote, did you reach out to the young men? Um, who was, uh, who was bullied by, uh, uh, by the prospect, did you reach out? Did you really truly understand the scope and the nature of what happened? Because this isn't just a little bit of harmless teasing. This is, this is borderline, I mean, it's criminal behavior. This isn't what you should be doing. And so I think what we're trying to do in the hockey world, and this is where I'm really disappointed that that Key Diversity Alliance uh, broke up with the National Hockey League, is it's stories like this. Like, there's a, there, and, and I, I, I don't love the term toxic masculinity because it does come with patience and, and, and you get the guys that no man are like that. And look, I, I, I get that. I understand that. So I'm not trying to uh, preach from a pulpit here, but what I'm trying to say is in our sport, there is absolutely a culture that this type of behavior is tolerated and treated as a learning experience. And I think that the time for that has to end. I think um, we need to hold young men free of accountability that we haven't done before. And I think for a lot of young men and for a lot of men of any age, that's an uncomfortable conversation. That's an uncomfortable conversation to point at somebody and you know what? That's wrong. That's not the way we're going to do it. And hockey culture has to change. And 
Um, you know, hockey is probably the most archaic sport and moving at a glacial pace realm. And there's a whole bunch of socioeconomic reasons, right, that are kind of behind all of that. And so I looked at that story. I was deeply disappointed. But I think all of us know this. I guess this is the, the thing that really hurts. It didn't really surprise anybody. And that's the problem. We've got to get to a point where those types of stories are not. Uh, kind of met with, yeah, well, what do you expect out of hockey culture? And this is what we do with hockey. And um, so that that's pretty disappointing. And I hope that we can get to a point where we're not using, like, look, I'll use the Austin Matthews story last year or whatever it was last year, two years ago, um, when he had that uh, with the with the security guard who was in Arizona. And everyone was like, oh, come on, man, leave him alone. He's just 22. When you were 22, what were you doing? Well. Let's change the conversation here. Like, what, what, why are we giving? When do we start giving twenty-year-old guys free passes to act in aggressive and toxic uh, ways? I don't know when that started, but it's got to stop now. So I think this is why we got to go into schools. We got to go into young programs. And I, you know what? I would really love guys, and not to. I apologize for going off here for uh, for so long. this. you know what I would love? I would love if Hockey Canada could fold in some. Uh, sensitivity, uh, inclusion training for every kid who plays hockey under the Hockey Canada umbrella at the age of 8, 9, 10. Bring it in. I, as a coach, I am fortunate enough to coach my daughter playing uh, ringette. I got to take all these courses about concussion training and, 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 and how to coach uh, young women and stuff. And I'm thinking, why aren't we doing the same thing with the players and teaching them? Like, why are we waiting for these missteps with Coyote prospects and Austin Matthews? Like, we got to do preventative training here. We got to do take preemptive action to stamp this out of the game. And so that's what my hope is, that stories like these become fewer and, uh, and far between. Yeah, I think that's really important, Ian, what you said. Um, the other thing I kind of think about, you know, having a, a mental health background myself, um, you know, that's where I, I've worked my whole career. So um, I kind of think of what the parents were doing here. Like Mitchell Miller's parents, um, to me, have to take some of the responsibility here. Like, what are you, what values are we teaching our children? I know you write for today's parents, and I know this is uh, somewhat off track, but uh, but what's your take on on that? Do you hold the parents accountable at all like I do, or do you think it's more on the the hockey culture? Well, we're experiencing a little bit of technical difficulties right now, uh, unfortunately. Uh, but, I mean, you did bring up a great point, Derek, with the parents. Uh, and once Ian... Yeah, oh, of course. <laughs> I love technology until you need it. Oh, and we dropped them. <laughs> yeah, we'll try and uh, hopefully try and get Ian back to uh, to answer that. But the, the question that I asked was uh, just around the parenting um, of this young man and how much um, we hold the parents responsible for this kid's actions. We're talking about Mitchell Miller, uh, the fourth round pick of the Arizona Coyotes. And, you know, just how, how do we hold the parents responsible here? Um, to me, as a parent, you're responsible for teaching, you know, values in your children. And uh, this is a kid that was bullying this, uh, this young black male um, with developmental disabilities for years. It's something that went on for years and, and making racial remarks. So uh, 
so yeah, I was curious to get uh, Ian's uh, response there, but also uh, Shane. I don't know, um, you know, what you think about that. If you hold them responsible to any degree, or if you think he was kind of old enough to make his his own decisions. Um, for for me, it's more of you know this this doesn't just happen. You know, kids don't kids aren't born racist. They don't kids aren't born seeing color the same way you know adults do so yes i i put a lot of the blame on the parents because i feel like you know the there's definitely some things that like you know i've talked to plenty of people about experience and like you know if you grow up in a white neighborhood and all you and you grow up in hockey and you know it's primarily white and you don't have experience with other uh people of color you know and your parents don't have that kind of experience you you grow up in a very narrow-minded view of the world. You don't have a very broad view of the world. And I feel like it's irresponsible for not to blame the parents. You know, he's not 22. You know, he's still a product of his surroundings. You know, uh, and I think, I think that's the big thing is that, like, at 14, you're still very much a product of your surroundings and parents need to be held accountable. But it looks like we have Ian back. Uh, Everything good on, on your end, Ian? <laughs> yeah, so, sorry about that. A, I don't know what happened there, but both of you froze up uh, completely, and then I couldn't. I, I know Derek uh, said something about parents, and then it just uh, it dipped out on me, so I apologize for that. Yeah, yeah. no, it, it's fine. I was on here with, because uh, I also do a, a CFL podcast, and we were talking with uh, Sherrod Baltimore yesterday, uh, and it happened the same thing. It kind of just it lagged out, so I think it's something maybe with StreamYard or something. I, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, I'll, I'll just get back into it, Ian, because I'm curious uh, what your take is on this. Um, it was just about, um, again, just a follow up from the, the Mitchell Miller thing. Um, so, you know, from myself, um, I have a mental health background and I work with uh, with families um, in that field. Um, I wanted your opinion on how much you hold the parents responsible for this. Um, this kid was, I think, 14, 13 or 14 when this started happening and it went on for years. So to me, I look at it um, kind of from that perspective and I kind of ask, you know, what values are we teaching our children and how much do we hold the parenting responsible here? Um, I know you are a writer for today's parents or, or um, you know, that's something that you did along your, uh, your career lines. So, uh, so I was curious what uh, your take on that was. Yeah, you know what, and and I think that's just that's just it, right? Like, wouldn't you be? And, and Derek, you mentioned you have a, a nine-year-old. Um, wouldn't you be mortified as a parent if the school contacted you and said, "Hey, Derek, um, just want to let you know your daughter's been bullying a classmate to the point that um, you know it, it's gotten out of hand, and we felt like we needed to intervene." Wouldn't you be bloody embarrassed as a parent? I know I would. I, I would. It would mortify me to think that my, my kids um, contributed to somebody's negative health, uh, mental health, because of uh, toxic and, and, and bullying behavior. Look, I understand all of us have relationships that, that, that fray from time to time and you have disagreements, but there's a line that's crossed, and it certainly does seem to with the, with the young Miller kid um, in, in, in this story, where this isn't just your typical, uh, you know what, that's kids being kids or boys being boys. No, this was... This was something more toxic and aesthetic. And I think as parents, um, you're right. Like, man, that 
that would destroy me to no end to think that my child was involved with that. And then it would, it should make you look in the mirror as a parent because I think for a lot of these stories, especially when you're dealing with kind of anybody under the age of 18, I think a lot of times it's a reflection of parenting. It, it really is. I mean, kids are only a product of their environment. You don't learn to use um, the N word unless you've heard it before or you've heard that it's okay to use it or you feel like it's okay to use it. And that's a reflection on parenting. I think um, that's the one, you know, our, our kids are, like I said, a little bit older, they're 16 and 13, um, but we're right in the throes of that whole social media, uh, cyber bullying and, 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 and all of that stuff. And, and it goes back to instilling values into your kids about respecting them. But yeah, no, it's interesting that you say that it was the like product of your surroundings because when you cut out, uh, that was kind of what we were talking about, how like a 14 year old is very much like, the product of their surroundings and that he must have realized that like things he was saying weren't like were okay because that's kind of where he grew up in like he realized that oh you know it's okay for me to say this like i i've heard you know my parents or family members saying this and no one has corrected them so it must be okay to say and that that in itself is a problem that needs to be dealt with yeah and and i guess my follow-up to you yeah, guys no, too Sorry, guys. Sorry, Derek. Go ahead. My, my uh, just my follow up is: Where do the Arizona Arizona Coyotes go with this? You know, what can they do? They they could get this kid to you know make a, a public statement all they want, but it's going to feel forced, is it not? It is. And look, I, I, I give the Coyotes some credit. Right, they have the first ever Latino uh, president of a hockey team there um, running the the, the the business side of things. So that's important. You got to understand that they're they're trying to do some things. But now, I think this is where it becomes disappointing. Is that if you're going to say you did your due diligence, how could you have done your due diligence and not reached out to the victim? That doesn't seem like due diligence to me. That seems like I googled an article. This came up, and we we asked him about it in the combine, and he said he's past that. Or you know, that's what that's not due diligence, right? So if the Arizona Coyotes are truly the team that wants to uh, prove that their actions speak loud in words and that their uh, words don't ring hollow and that they want to show that they're committed. If I were them, I would, uh, I would be um, and that we're going to put this young man, we're going to do diversity training, and then we're going to tell you every single one of our prospects when we come in camp, we're going to put you through sensitivity, diversity, and... Um, you know, training along that. Like, you know, I wonder, like, why, again, I'll go back. I, I put a list on Hockey Canada, but I'll go back to uh, junior hockey programs, NCAA programs. Like, you need to be having these young men exposed to um, victims of, uh, you know, assault and abuse. Coming and speaking to your group so they understand. They understand what the power of um, these types of actions and incidents have on people. And I think... Um, uh, I think if, if the Coyotes are serious about this, they would launch their own internal training program for their own prospects and players to say, this is, uh, this is important to us. Diversity and inclusion is important to us. Every single member of the Arizona Coyotes, whether they're on the ice or off the ice, will undergo training. I think too often what happens is somebody has a misstep and then you're like, you know what? It's time for sensitivity diversity training. No, the time for that is before anything happens. And I think this is what I think they should commit themselves to going forward is that there will never be another story like this under the, the Coyotes umbrella. 
Yeah, I, I love that answer. I think, you know, we need to be proactive instead of reactive when it comes to this stuff. And we need to start planning ahead and, and start implementing all of these trainings. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree on all that. You know, it's always about, you know, we, we need to be more proactive than reactive on almost all kind of things now. And I agree with Ian, you know, this starts at the grassroots levels. If you can get the kids in, you know, eight, nine, yeah, they're young and people will say, oh, they don't know the difference. That's that's where you start because they may not know exactly what's wrong or right. That, that's the perfect time. You know, they can be molded and, and kind of learned like, oh, yeah, this is right. This is wrong. This is how you handle certain things. And on top of uh, this situation, you know, there there was the one out in Calgary where the video rose of a kid having a seizure, um, you know, and there's an investigation in that. And that's that's minor hockey. That's not even like, you know, NHL or, or you know, junior. That, that's minor hockey. These kids are like, I think the kids are like 16 when this happened, like in this incident. And like that stuff needs to change. And that changes by introducing this stuff at, you know, the grassroots level at eight, nine years old. And basically telling kids like, yeah, th- this isn't how you handled it. This isn't normal behavior. You know, yeah, your your older brother may have done it. Your your dad may have done it. And I think it also at diversity training for the parents, you know, sensitivity training for the parents. You know, parents have such a, especially hockey parents have such a, a bad reputation uh, of, you know, being, so we all see the videos of parents yelling at each other over, you know, a 10-year-old hockey game. That, you know, puts fire adds fuel to the fire and that needs to be stopped as well and i think you know if you're part of hockey you know ian said that as a coach he has to do all this training if you're if you're part of hockey if a parent if you're a manager whatever you should also have to go through the training with your child so you both understand that like this stuff won't be acceptable and this won't will there will be uh, consequences for your actions no matter your age because, you know, this is wrong and we're going to make sure that you guys understand that this is wrong. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think um, what I do, and I'm, I'm really fortunate to be part of this uh, this pretty cool group in Ottawa, um, which is actually started by high school men who go to high school here in uh, in Ottawa. And it's all about uh, other young men to accountability when it comes to um, domestic violence, sexual assault. And, you know, I've been going to the schools and talk to, to a lot of young men. And what I try and tell them is that, you know, we're, we're actually trying to help you out. Like we're, we're giving you training so that when you go on to your, uh, you know, professional career, like this type of behavior isn't tolerated in a business setting. Like imagine if you guys went to your jobs, if you, you know, if you work in an office, did some of these things in the office, you'd be fired and, you know, you'd probably be slapped with a harassment suit and that would be that. But sometimes this behavior goes on in schools. Sometimes this behavior goes on in locker rooms and we don't have that same degree of accountability. Like it's almost like what we do in business world, you can't do that. But you know, in, in school and in, in youth sports, we can have this stuff going on. And I think that's what we need to try and teach these young men is that like, we're trying to just set the, the tone for you of what society has moved towards. Right. And this isn't, this isn't your dad's day or your uncle's day, or your grandpa's day. That day is gone. It's, it's, uh, I, um, uh, I think if we can move towards these conversations, and that's why I think sports has this great opportunity, right? Like sports can impact young people in a way that um, politics can't and religion can't, but sports can. Like I, that's why I'm always a big believer in can we use this as a vehicle 
to teach kids values. It has nothing to do with politics, has nothing to do with religion. Just as about respecting other human beings. And I think that's where team sports can be so valuable. And that's, you know, kind of pie in the sky, rainbow outlook would be like, wouldn't it be great if we could all, um, you know, teammates and, and use sports as, as, a, as a backdrop? Yeah, that, that's 100% for sure. I mean, this is a conversation we need to continue to have and we can have for hours and talk about different ways to, to put an end to, to the negativity around hockey culture. But, you know, we, we fortunately, you know, we do have to move on. And uh, we introduced it last week. We did uh, Matt Murray. This week we're going to look at uh, Dodinoff and what his over-under for his point total will be. I'm going to say I'm, I'm putting the over-under at 50.5 points. Uh, he'll probably lead the Senators in points. Uh, Ian, if you can hear us, uh, w- where do you think uh, that enough point total will be uh, next season? Okay, so I heard all I heard was Dadnoff and points. I'm going to go ahead and assume that you're asking me for a points projection from Evgeny Dadnoff. So I'm hoping that that's what you asked. I'm going to roll the dice if that's what you asked. And I, I'm going to say that I, I think a 65-point season is probably what you can expect out of him. Like, I, I think if you get 25 goals and 40 assists out of Dadnoff, we're not going to have Barbie at Huberdell. Um, so, you know, he's probably not going to be a 65-point guy. Um, but, you know, three straight 25-goal seasons lead me to believe that he is probably in that – 20 to 25 goal range and probably the 60 to 65 point range. So I think that's a safe bet. Like if I'm picking who's going to lead them in scoring, I'd, I'd go with it. And, and Derek, where, where are you at? Yeah. Uh, pretty similar to what uh, Ian said. I'm not going to go as high, like 65 points. I think that would be phenomenal if, uh, if dad not puts up 65 points, but definitely over the 50, did you have 50.5? Yeah. yeah 50.5. Yeah, so I'm going to take the over on that as well. I think Dadnov will be their leading uh, scorer this season. I, I can see him in the 60-point range for sure. Um, he is away from Barkov and Huberto. Uh, I think that could have an impact. Um, but looking at how he scored, scores goals, um, you know, he likes that bumper spot. He likes to tip pucks in front. And he, he can get to uh, the gritty areas in front of the net. So I like his point proje- uh, projection. Um, he's also subtly good at playmaking. Um, so I see him in the 60-point range as well. Yeah, that, that, that's fair. I would take the over as well, and i take him uh, as well being the leading point getter. If you had to bet on who would lead Ottawa in points, Dadanoff would be the way to go. Uh, but, you know, that's how we're going to end this episode on the, the Dadanoff hype train. You know, we had a, a good discussion with Ian. And again, Ian, thank you for coming on. Uh, you can catch him on uh, TSN 1200 between 2 and 6 on the, the drive. Uh, you can also find him on uh, Instagram or Twitter, uh, Ian underscore Mendez. Uh, so thank you, Ian, for coming on. It was a pleasure having you. And hopefully we can uh, have you on when there's a season announced. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I don't know if you still got me or not. I think it uh, sounded like you were wrapping up there, but... Uh, appreciate uh, appreciate uh, you guys thinking of me and uh, having me on and it was nice to be a guest on Derek's uh, show for a change so that was uh, that was nice uh, a little role reversal there but anytime you guys need uh, 
anytime you guys need anything, you let me know. Um, you know, reach out. You, you guys obviously have my contact info. Uh, reach out. Would love to be a guest uh, again, and hopefully we get a better, uh, better internet connection next time. Yeah, hopefully. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on, uh, Derek. As well, thank you for for being part of this. You can find him at uh, D Lee zero uh, seventy five on Twitter. He's a Sunshot contributor. Great articles. Uh, and again, if you if, if you're not sure what Ian's talking about, when in terms of uh, being roles reversed, he was on TSN twelve hundred a couple weeks ago talking about uh, our good friend uh, Eric, who tragically uh, passed away at the end of August uh, in Calgary. You know. Uh, you know, hearts out to, to his family through all this. Uh, great young sense fan. Uh, you know, he would have loved the draft. Uh, not gonna lie, he probably have already bought one of the jerseys. Um, but yeah, I know. Uh, thank you, Derek, for coming on again. Hopefully, we'll have you on sometime this weekend for another episode. Um, you can find us at Sense Hour Podcast, Sense underscore Hour, um, on Twitter and Instagram. Myself at Shane underscore Ryan ninety seven. Thank you guys very much for listening. Thank you again, Ian, for coming on. And Derek, we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Have a great one, guys. Uh, And stay safe out there. Enjoy the Halloween. Thanks, guys.